Welcome to the latest in our series of Beer and Brexit. Uh, I'm going to break with tradition and make a couple of announcements. The first is I've been told to say to you, please sign up for our newsletter in return for the free beer. It's a small price to pay. Uh, the second announcement is for those millions watching the live stream, which is I hope we've now sorted out our sound problems. Uh, we understand that you, some of these events in the past you've had to watch without being able to hear anything, which you might decide was a blessing after watching this, but I hope now you can hear okay. Let us know if you're still having any problems. Uh, and finally, it's a great pleasure to welcome here to London the guy I like to refer to as Michel Barnier's human shield in this country, uh, Stefan Derink, who is a senior advisor to the chief Brexit negotiator. That's not the best thing he's ever done in his career, though, because Stefan used to be an academic, didn't you? Yes. Not only that, but he wrote an article for West European politics that I used to edit way back when. And I'm going to embarrass you now. How exciting does this sound? Structured comparison of policy convergence or divergence between Flanders and Wallonia. Which focused, don't laugh, which focused on the link between the federal state and the development of policymaking in the regions. We're going to come back to this maybe. We can talk about Belgian regions later on. Do you miss academia? The latest, I published one on banking union two years ago. So oh, did you? Uh, yeah. But not in West European politics. No, so Journal I mean, of European Public Policy. Well, that's not a very good journal, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, do you miss academia? <laughs> yes, sometimes. But are you pleased but that never during Brexit. Really? <laughs> this has been the most fulfilling time of your professional life. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Stefan's worked for the European Commission since the early 2000s. I think you worked with Michel Barnier way back at the start of your commission career, did you? Correct, 2001 I started. 11th of September 2001. I remember and, it. And between 2010 and 2013, you were in charge of communicating the benefits of the single market. Yes, amongst other things. Except here, obviously, where you <laughs> didn't bother doing that at all. Uh, this country has contributed so much to the single market, it didn't need further explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so it says here that you played a role in helping to draft Article 50. I, I was involved in the Convention on the Future of Europe, which okay. drafted Article 50, yes. I didn't draft myself. There no, we know who did that. Well, there are various people who claim they did it, to be, uh, to be fair. And, uh, it's a strange authorship to claim, I always think. Well, I remember it came from very arch-federalists who said in the federal system you need a secession clause, or whatever you may call it in the federal, federal jargon. And then the Eurosceptic says, but then we need a, an end date that we need to go if there's no deal. You can't be imprisoned of a process. Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> did you think at the time it would ever be used? No. Didn't cross your mind? No. Okay. Right. We'll get on to substance now. And I suppose the first thing is, have the negotiations panned out as you would have expected at the start? <laughs> Predictions no with benefit of hindsight. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but what what uh, surprised well, you most about? I, if you go back to the start, it was June 17. That's when we started the negotiations. Mm -hmm. I think then it was hard to predict uh, what happened after the Florence speech, because we put the Florence speech of Theresa May as a turning point there. In, because before that, the money question was still linked through the future relationship, and the EU said, no, no, money is about settling the accounts from the past. And the Florence speech changed that. And the dynamics then to the December joint report for the withdrawal issues was, was good and, and clear in a way. And I think if you would put yourself on the joint report in se December 17, you could have predicted almost everything that is in the withdrawal agreement today. Mm -hmm. 
including the backstop, including citizens' rights and the money, including the transition and the terms of the transition, with the exception of the single customs territory of the backstop, which came later as a UK request. So for the withdrawal agreement, predictions would have been relatively good to make in December. For, I would have been more surprised with the future relationship because in June, the UK said we would like to do this together. We don't like the sequencing that, that the EU is proposing, but then we went along with the sequencing. When we then came in March 2018, we being the European Council with an offer on the future relationship, I had expected that negotiations would accelerate, which they didn't. Because then that was March, then came Czechos July, Salzburg. So we had very little time, less time to work on the future relationship than we would probably have predicted in June 17 in the end. Do you, think this, do you think it's fair to say that this whole process has been a massive learning process for the British government and the British Prime Minister? It has been a learning process for us in the, in the Commission because we have rediscovered things like the customs union, which <laughs> barely anyone talked about before. Uh, we have discovered many things. We have screened all the policies from the start in our task force. And that was a learning curve for us. Do you think, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep trying for a couple of minutes on this. I mean, do you think relative to other member states, there's less of an understanding in this one about how the EU works and what these negotiations would have been like? Ooh, that's, uh, I don't want to put any value judgment on who understands better or less. I'm going to give I, up in I, a moment with this no, well, questioning. No, well, I'm just thinking back. You said you, you worked for Michel Barnier before. There was a referendum campaign in France on the Constitutional Treaty 2005. And I think... Also then, things were told which were not really re real or mm. you know, kind of things were invented that were in the Constitutional Treaty which were not and, 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 and Well, so, Ireland as well. So, yeah. Irish, well yeah. But Ireland is, is, is interesting because when Ireland then, it's often used as a comparison for what we're looking at now, when Ireland said no, then it had a national public debate on, you know, what does this mean that we said no? And what shall we ask the Europeans in terms of, because we would like to be part of that. And that's it, yeah. Hmm. The other interesting thing that one of our researchers, Matt, found out the other day and wrote about was that uh, after the Irish first said no, the Commission did a, an immediate poll in Ireland to find out why they said no and then had a basic idea as to what they needed to offer or to talk about in terms of getting the vote over the line the second time. Uh, it's very different than in out referendum, I would say. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Do you, has there been a a specific decision taken to start making comments about British politics in the EU? I mean, it, stri it just <laughs> it strikes me that of late, mm. there has been an increased willingness to say, oh, Mr. Corbyn's had a good plan, why don't you talk to him? In a way that I don't think would have been the case. I'm not so sure. I think we've always somewhat being wrongfully accused, I would say, of wading into UK politics. We've been accused of trying to sabotage mm -hmm. Brexit. We've been accused of trying to UK in our regulatory orbit, where we just basically said, well, there are different choices. You, you need to make up your mind. Do you want a free trade model? Do you want the Norway model? Do you want the permanent customs union, which you referred to as Corbyn, but which we talked about for a long time, uh, as one of the options that the UK could choose for the future relationship? So I'm not really sure whether, you, whether we waded into British politics lately more than, than ever before, because I don't think we ever tried, we always try to avoid doing that. Just being factual, explaining the principles of the EU and the choices that come from that, that was, we've been trying to do that. It has often been represented in this country as us trying to influence the choice of the British government, which I don't think has ever been the case. 
But you don't think there's been a change of tone? I mean, everyone points to that uh, EPC event with your colleague Sabine Weyond when mm. she just appeared visibly sort of frustrated <laughs> uh, when she spoke. And actually, it, 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 for, for observers here at least, you thought, wow, they're really getting cross now. I mean, I know Sabine is good humored and blunt speaker. And so I'm not sure what feelings she had when she was speaking, but I guess you referred to when she said, you know, we don't feel the ownership of the result of negotiations in, in the UK mm. after 18 months of laborious work, where we were transparent, step by step, uh, put on the table what we had agreed, how we could move forward. I mean, I, in the first thing you asked me about the predictions, I said December 17, you would know the citizens' rights, the money, and the backstop, and the, tra mm. and the transition came a bit later, but that package was, was clear. It's a bit surprising now to see all the commotion, because in December 17, we said, whatever the circumstances, there will have to be a backstop. No, I get that, but it just, I mean, just going back to the issue of tone, it just, mm. just does strike me that something has, something has shifted a little bit in Brussels, and I was just wondering whether this was a plan or whether this was just genuine frustration <laughs> bubbling over. There is no plan now. I mean, the, the plan on our side is, to, is the ratification of what was agreed and, and, and what the UK government collectively supported, bar some resignations in November, uh, of the people who couldn't agree then, Dominic Raab and Esther McVeigh, I believe, were, were the people who left the government then. 14th of November, we collected, the UK government agreed to that, and we then say, well, our job is the ratification, and if the UK has ratification issues, we're happy to see if we can be helpful, but we need to see where we can, we can be helpful in, in, in the process, because it is a UK process for most. So on, on ratification issues, then, were you, were, you, were you at all surprised by the scale of the defeat that the Prime Minister suffered? Yes. Uh, well, there were people on Twitter, of course, Westminster correspondents, predicting that in the, in the run-up. So, but with a bit of distance, maybe we shouldn't have been surprised, because if you think about it, there were people who on the second referendum who didn't support the deal because that kills the second referendum. There are people who prefer no deal. There are people who think, well, this Brexit is too blind for me in terms of the political declaration. I don't think that does full justice to the declaration because there's more in there in terms of detail than some people assume. But by and large, as I said before, we had less time than I would have expected to work on the political declaration if you had put me back in the time machine to mm. June 17. So you have people who support the Norway model, people who support the permanent customs union, or even both, the Norway plus, as it's sometimes referred to. The paradox of that is that this political declaration allows for all of that, in fact. The political declaration doesn't impose any choices on the UK it doesn't want to make. And so... So I would paraphrase yeah. that by saying that you just said there's a level of dishonesty in our parliamentary debate. But you might not want me to paraphrase you in that way. Well, uh, I, I will certainly not repeat what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> but in a sense, that people, people, some people might be in danger of talking about the wrong things in this debate about ratifying. Perhaps, yes. I mean, I think a fierce debate has erupted here on the future relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair thing to say with strain, political parties, uh, lots of, as, as there should be, because it's, a, it's really an an essential decision for this country mm -hmm. to take. It comes a bit late in the process, I would say, but here we are, and we have, we have to make the best of, of where we are. And I think that is the real issue for debate. What is the future relationship with the EU? In my 
personal assessment, the, the whole debate on should there be a time limit to the backstop is linked in a way to the uncertainty of what comes next because the country hasn't chosen that and the country is still in a, in a fierce debate on mm -hmm. what it wants to come next or what it wants to, but, to uh, happen we'll, after that. We'll come back to the backstop. Yeah. But just for now, that's one of the things that surprised me is the number of people on the EU side who've been sort of hinting that Mr Corbyn's got some ideas that might suggest a way forward. But given what you've just said about the future relationship, I don't understand that line of thinking at all. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, Mr Corbyn's customs union or whatever, that's about the future relationship, isn't it? Why, yes. Where does that argument come from, that somehow Mr Corbyn has some answers that the government doesn't have? No, I think some people, I would guess some MPs have voted from their public statements and been voted against because they don't feel comforted by the clarity of the political declaration. And so what I'm saying is, well, first, the declaration allows for various outcomes at the end of the negotiation mm -hmm. process. But we have always said, from the day Barnier, Michel Barnier published his famous staircase, that the Turkey flag is there and a comprehensive customs union is available. And if we can be helpful by offering to rework the political declaration now in terms of finding a route forward for the ratification, then we would be happy to do so. But obviously, we're not negotiating with Jeremy Corbyn, we're negotiating with the UK government, and it's up to the UK government to decide whether it wants to do that and, and how it wants to construct a majority for ratification. What changes can be made to withdrawal agreement now? The withdrawal agreement is not open for, for changes. In any way, shape or form? No. Not even if a tokenistic change to the text was enough to unlock a deal? We, President Tusk and Juncker gave some clarifications just before the meaningful vote. Mm -hmm. Quite a long letter that explained the backstop is temporary, the future relationship, we're really committed. Because part of what I don't understand is the, the idea that we wouldn't be interested in a future relationship, which seems to be in the, in the minds of some people at least in, in the debate in this country, which, you know, we're negotiating with New Zealand, with countries far away. Of course, you want a strong future relationship with the UK. That goes without saying. And now I lost track of your question. Um, <laughs> well, it was you as well, I think. Yeah, no, I, yeah I'm, 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 thinking, I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the next question. Uh, you really embarrass me now. Uh, how can the withdrawal agreement be changed? Yeah. That, yeah. Well. Focus so yes, now. that focus. Yes, focus. But. <laughs> um, so that letter contained a number of reassurances. That's why yeah. in your reply to your question, I talk about that letter. So if we can find ways to give reassurances that the backstop is temporary, it's not a future relationship, and, and all the rest of it, then we will be happy to do so. But where we stand today, we would need to hear from the UK, first and foremost, but what, it, what it would find useful as clarifications or But then why the insistence on not opening up the text of the withdrawal agreement? I mean, surely you see that actually if at heart this is a game of providing fig leaves for some MPs who are keen to reverse their position and support this deal, a more effective fig leaf is to stick it inside the withdrawal agreement and the government can credibly come back and say we have negotiated a change to the withdrawal agreement than sticking it in some codicil or accompanying letter or something like that. The withdrawal agreement is a result of very intense and difficult negotiations mm -hmm. uh, where we made compromises and uh, the single customs territory at the very end of that process, some member states were concerned. Uh, so we had to work on that, on, on the reassurances for member states as well about the single customs territory. It's also the result of a step-by-step -step negotiation process. 
building on commitments from the joint report of December 17, from the letter that Theresa May sent to Donald Tusk in March 18, that there should be a legally operative backstop in the withdrawal agreement. And you say, well, why not reopen the withdrawal agreement? The ideas for reopening the withdrawal agreement are basically changing the backstop, making it no longer a genuine backstop, because the backstop has to be there whatever the circumstances. We agreed on that jointly. So if you have a time limit or a unilateral exit clause, you no longer have a genuine backstop. And so there's zero appetite in the EU27 to reopen that withdrawal agreement. But, OK, but just to challenge you one time on that, there is a willingness to do a codicil or something like that for clarificatory purposes, OK? And presumably, from your position, that is a codicil that doesn't change the fundamental nature of the backstop or impose a time limit or anything like that. It has to be consistent with withdrawal agreements. Why Whatever can't that is... text be put inside the withdrawal agreement? Is my so. I mean, <laughs> just I mean, for pre I mean, presentation will matter at the end of this. I know it's a, it's a on one level it's a very trivial point. On another, if you're trying to persuade MPs, it might be that the prime minister wins five or six MPs over by saying I've changed the withdrawal agreement, who she might not have get by got by saying I've got a codicil. And if, if we both agree that actually the substance remains much the same, but there is, there is some guarantee-like language, why not put it in the... Well, let's first see what the UK government wants as language, because that, as of today, we do not know. So first, let's look at the substance of what the UK wants. There will be no reopening of the withdrawal agreement. But if we can provide clarifications, reassurances through some mechanism, have the one you referred to or some other you referred to or some other mechanism, we will try to be as helpful as possible. I would certainly caution against people who uh, you know, think that a reopening of the withdrawal agreement will make ratification easier. Here. Well, you see ideas circling about you know, let's reopen the financial settlement and link it more to the future relationship. These ideas float and so I think we'd be very, very cautious. So we're not just talking about the backstop. We're talking about the whole package that was agreed by 27 sovereign countries on our side. So I think people sometimes see this as a one-on-one -on -one negotiation, EU versus UK, or EU with UK, or EU and UK. But there are also 27 governments there who have endorsed this at the heads of state and government level. And basically, that's where we are. I think it's important to, to keep it also and to find another route forward in terms of the chances for ratification. Okay, but there's and, 27 and governments that have seen the specific political problems we have here, and all of whom would prefer a deal over no deal, presumably. Yes, we all prefer a, no, a deal, yes, absolutely. All right, so <laughs> can you just explain as simply as possible what the problems or doubts or concerns that some member states had about the single customs territory were? Um, well, there were a couple of issues. I mean, the, the idea came from the temporary customs arrangement paper of the UK government, which mm -hmm. came out in June. Uh, that was the embryonic form, in a way. Mm -hmm. And Michel Bagnier never closed the door on that, but always expressed concerns. Concerns on tariff-free access. What about level playing field conditions? Mm -hmm. Concerns then also because checkers then came in as well. And then we were confronted with Let's have a UK-wide customs arrangement as part of the backstop, and let's also stay in the single market for goods, which kind of was about a project to make the UK the manufacturing hub of the European Union, basically. And that's also why Salzburg rejected that, that idea, de facto in terms of the, the economic impact of what it could have been. 
So you have to see it as well in the context of that discussion was against the backdrop also of the checkers plan, mm -hmm. which was the cherry picking of the single market. So well, hang the, on, let me just yeah. give you another an alternative interpretation of checkers is it wasn't a cherry picking of the single market, it was the determination of the Prime Minister to, to define the economic policy of this country in terms of the need to avoid a border in Northern Ireland. Right, but we always said, as far as Northern Ireland is concerned, because of the unique circumstances, Good Friday Agreement, North-South, single market integrity and all the rest of it, there we can tolerate a single market for goods with the UK in respect of Northern Ireland, or for Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. basically. But we cannot have that UK-wide. And that has been... But you expect the UK to tolerate internal borders, then? Internal borders, as in? As in f for trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK? Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK is a different story. I think you may be talking about Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Great Britain, and, yeah, yeah, sorry. So, because the other way around is yeah. part of the new yeah. backstop article, so which is part of how we try to accommodate the UK's concerns. That's an important article in the protocol on the integrity of the UK internal market. But in the current backstop arrangements, there are controls from GB into Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. They can be in premises of companies, but they are there. That's part of the, the agreement that we, have, that we have reached. Were you surprised by how badly the Prime Minister sold the deal she got here? I mean, it, it, let me, I mean, it, it does seem to me, I mean, you've just made the point that you made what was, in effect, a rather large concession. Mm. by agreeing the single customs territory in a negotiation that was problematic for a lot of member states and in a context in which the European Union has said we're not doing future trade, mm. trade deals now. I mean, effectively, the backstop is a bit like a future relationship. So you'd conceded quite a lot. Were you surprised that the Prime Minister came back and didn't actually try and make that point here more strongly? Because it does seem to me that there's been a lack of a marketing exercise around this. I need to pick up on one point, though, before... Moving to the other question, you say the backstop is some kind of future relationship. That is not the case. Let's just be very clear about that. One of the concerns, and I come back to your question on the single customs territory, was the legal feasibility under Article 50. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, in the political declaration, the language is very carefully crafted as we will build and improve on the single customs territory. Mm -hmm. So the single customs territory is the starting point for the negotiations on the future relationship. It is by no means the end point. And the backstop is not a precondition as well for the mm -hmm. future relationship. So um, I think that's the most important part of my answer because the other part was about but we could how do I judge the prime minister, which is not time. really my position to, sorry? But we could be in that backstop for a, a long time. I think we, first, we have the best endeavors mm -hmm. to find alternative arrangements, subsequent agreements during the first transition, let's say. If Imagine it would be a second, so during the transition to December 2020. Then the UK has the option to go for a second transition if it wants to. Uh, so in that sense, the, the date is deferred by which, if ever the backstop would have to be used, the starting date is then deferred. I'm not sure why you would think you would be in there for a long time. It is temporary. Well, it, and, and it, it is conceivable we could be in there for a long time, isn't it? But there's a joint review mechanism and a way out, which is joint. So, and that, I guess, part of an international agreement is you have joint commitments. 
So it is a joint commitment and a process to get out of the backstop if ever it would have to be used. If both sides agree. And the alternative arrangements, the Brady Amendment, that formulation is part of the recitals to the backstop, mm -hmm. to, to the protocol, which says, yes, we need to, the EU and the UK intend to uh, explore, search, replace the backstop with alternative arrangements. And so we need to work on those alternative arrangements. We could even start 1st of April if it's... So all those parliamentarians whose opposition to the withdrawal agreement is based on the fact that we could be trapped in the backstop forever, you're saying this absolutely won't be the case. Well, that is a bit the irony of the story, because it's the UK that asked for the single customs territory. Mm -hmm. You may recall that we failed to reach an agreement in the October European Council, and then we had an acceleration to this special council in November, where we drafted very quickly a single customs territory with the level playing field conditions and state aid, social environmental taxation. Uh, that was no mean feat, I would say, mm -hmm. but we managed to do that in, uh, in, in a very limited space, uh, in a very limited time. Uh, but it was the UK that asked for that mm -hmm. single customs territory. So if now people in the UK say we're trapped in that, I don't think it's true, first of all, because it is temporary. It is unless and until. But it is event limited. It has to be replaced by an event. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, well, it is something the UK has asked. Which takes us back to the Prime Minister and her marketing. Uh, <laughs> lack of, I mean, it, it just strikes me as strange, doesn't it? Given the way you're talking about the backstop, which was a concession to the Brits, it was hard won, it was demanded by the Brits. But the Prime Minister came back and didn't say, look what I've won. It was presented as helpful for the ratification. Here? To us. To you. Yeah, but I mean, the, my point is, it, I just wondered if you were surprised by the fact that it was never really presented as such here. As I recall, the Prime Minister went off to Scotland and Wales and somewhere else, and that was, and, and didn't actually at any point offer us a substantial, substantive defence of the deal she negotiated. I won't make any judgment on, on the Prime Minister and marketing skills. That's not my, that's not my place. <laughs> but I would take a step back and... Uh, it was a good try, though, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> The shield works in both ways, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are tough choices to be made in the Brexit. It, it, there are trade-offs. And in the UK public debate, I'm not sure if those trade-offs have been spelled out sufficiently mm -hmm. in general. And I think the Prime Minister wanted to go for a single customs territory where she said, OK, the EU guys are asking me to have some very Northern Irish specific kind of arrangement. I want something UK-wide. You remember that whole discussion. That, that, that's where that comes from. Mm -hmm. And so we went along with that to say, OK, if that, if that then helps, let's stretch to the limit of our imagination on our side as well. Did you get any inkling in that room among officials that on the British side people thought, uh-oh, the single customs territory is going to be a nightmare when we get home? I mean, was did anyone, I mean, I, I got the sense that people were genuinely surprised by this. I mean, did you, did you sit in that tunnel or whatever you call it in Brussels and have the <laughs> Brits saying to you, God, I hope this works in Parliament, but I have my doubts? Or was it a complete shock when it came back and actually the concession you'd given us turned into the single most explosive issue over here? But it brings you back, I think, to was there a sufficient public debate in this country since the referendum to bring the different visions try and bring the different visions together on mm -hmm. where this country should go now that it will leave the EU. I think that's the heart of, of what we're talking about here. 
And you can only say that you're surprised by an end result because there was no prior debate on where you wanted to take it. Mm -hmm. But do you think that Ollie Robbins and co were slightly shocked when their sort of negotiating triumph became a parliamentary nightmare? You're asking me a lot to read the minds of yeah, British... Yeah, uh, I'm just asking your opinion. I mean, <laughs> I would you can't blame you for trying. The only thing I would say, a British civil service, that they always experienced them as extremely professional and loyal to what the government asked them to do. Because I sometimes it's not a view universally country. shared in this city at the moment, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, if we ended up with no deal, would it inevitably lead to the creation of a hard border in the island of Ireland? I, I honestly cannot imagine why people would want to aggravate the problems in Ireland by going for no deal. Okay, but would it lead to a hard border? <laughs> it would be a challenging situation. Sure. Well, Stefan's after a job in the External Action Service. That is no, no, no. very, very clear indeed. I think it would be very interesting. And it would be actually, a, again, you, I don't want to speak for the UK, but I think if everyone would recognize that if you have a no deal scenario, the first weeks and months of the UK government will be terribly crucial for the future of this country, I think. Mm -hmm. choices will be made. Mm -hmm. Will the UK honour its financial obligations mm -hmm. to the EU? In the Northern Irish context, in terms of your question, the no deal doesn't wish away the problems that the backstop solves. Mm -hmm. So the UK has committed to the Good Friday Agreement and all the obligations that go with that, including North-South cooperation. The UK has said that whatever the circumstances, we will try to keep an open border. Mm -hmm. UK has said it wants to be respectful and helpful for Ireland's place in the single market. All these commitments hopefully would stand in a no deal scenario. But what and some Brexiters would say is we leave with no deal, it's fine, we're not putting up a border. Would the EU really put a border up, given its commitments to Northern Ireland and to the Republic? If, if it's... The project is about taking back control would be rather paradoxical to end up with... OK, I'm not denying that there are contradictions and paradoxes on our side, <laughs> but what I'm saying is if, <laughs> yes. if it turned out that we left with no deal and the British government acted in that way and said, actually, no, we're not going to put a border there. Let's see if the EU do, but they'd be silly too. Well, how will the UK then develop the Global Britain project and explain... Absolutely, how, there okay, are practical problems. Let me but bring it then back to, because you're pushing me back to the Irish context, clearly. Mm. Um, it, again, we would be confronted with exactly the same problems. And for 18 months, we've been looking at these problems. And for the moment, bar continued search for alternative arrangements during transition and all the rest of it, bar future relationship, this is what the best that we came up with, turning every stone, together with the UK, in a, in a constructive uh, spirit. Um, in a no-deal scenario, the EU would have to list the UK as a country that is fit for exporting meat products to the EU, mm -hmm. if I become a bit technical, the equivalence list. That goes with a whole process of guarantees, conditions, uh, establishment, and all the rest, standards, checks, mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. You can easily see where the story may actually go in this context. If, how does that work, then? Where will the checks take place? Mm -hmm. and the political reality, Northern Ireland, is one issue. There's a geographical reality, of course, of an island, an epidemiological unit, mm -hmm. which should stay as an epidemiological unit, I would say. And so the most stringent checks we have is indeed on sanitary, phytosanitary standards. Mm 
where will they have to take place in a no-deal scenario? Do Question mark. Do you think it might <laughs> seriously happen that those checks take place between the Republic and the EU 26 in the there, event of no-deal? There will be strong solidarity, I think, with Ireland in a no-deal scenario, just as there has been for the peace process, but also for the single market integrity. But you can't have both under those circumstances, surely. But I'm not sure if a country that is leaving the EU would then want to say, and we're fine with, putting a, with you taking on the responsibility for putting up borders inside your single market. There is, there is a responsibility for the UK here. Mm -hmm. Brexit causes a specific problem in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that a no deal scenario magnifies those problems. It, doesn't, it won't make them easier to solve. Contrary to what some people seem to say, who think, well, no deal, we get rid of these pesky Europeans, no longer these rules, and so on. The EU will not go away, right? <laughs> no, EU, no, absolutely. So you will have to find an accommodation with the EU. Kishore. Because you're leaving the European Union, to coin a phrase, but you're not leaving Europe. But the European Union is quite a large part of Europe. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the European affairs are governed to a large part by member states cooperating through the European Union and European institutions. Just so, yeah. No, go on. No, fine. Just, I mean, just a final thing, because actually I'm, I've spent too much of my life talking about the backstop, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> do you think technology can ever be the answer to avoiding borders between different legal jurisdictions? At least we got rid of the backstop to the yeah, backstop, um, if I can say yeah, yeah. one thing. So <laughs> I never really understood it, but don't tell me. Technology can help mitigate how you do checks. Mm -hmm. The smart border ideas of Lars Carlson, which is often quoted here, they're very good ideas, probably they're even better ideas that are not in his report. There's technology that hasn't been invented yet. The deputy chief negotiator said we shouldn't deprive ourselves of our capacity to become more intelligent, also artificially. So all of that is ahead of, can, can be, hopefully is ahead of us. However, if you have two distinct legal orders, I quote from the political declaration, mm. two regulatory spaces that are distinct, two customs territories that are distinct, inevitably you have checks. Mm. Where you have the checks, how do you do the checks, is a whole other ball game with technology. Okay. So, you, so you, you could come to a different outcome through that. But I think, oh. I just always get the feeling, I'm, I'm quite yeah. cynical, but I always get the feeling that when the EU says it's open to technological solutions in the future, mm. it says it with a bit of an eye roll in a kind of, yeah, right, well, that's not going to happen sort of way. Our colleagues from DigiTaxuit, Taxation and Customs Union, work on blockchain. I see they have conferences, so there are ideas out there. I'm not sure how feasible they are. I'm not an expert in this, but people are working on this. Also for the 27, because we want to have our customs, obviously, to global standards, the best performing customs in the world, if possible. So we also look at technology for ourselves. Just on the other issue that's going to bubble up in the next few weeks, under what conditions do you think the EU would be happy to grant an extension to the Article 50 process? We never had a collective discussion at 27 for that. Huh? Probably some of you saw what President Juncker said today. I think that, that goes without saying. But first of all, of course, the UK would have to request. Mm -hmm. that, that's the first thing to say on this question. Mm -hmm. So there is no request. So if there is a request, then you would have to look at this. Uh, and we'll gladly look at this, no doubt. The question will be a bit, you know, what purpose does it serve? 
and in function of the purpose, what duration does it have? And there are different scenarios. I don't want to speculate on any, but you could have the meaningful vote has passed, and then you need some kind of extension for ratification and wrapping it all so up. The, the technical extension as we... Right, yeah. Or, or there is another type. It's really a decision for the 27 to take unanimously if the OK requests it. And it's not to skate around your question, but honestly, I think people need to realize this will be an eminently political discussion at, between 27 leaders. Mm -hmm. But presumably there's also been some technical work on, for instance, the legal implications of an extension beyond July the 1st that has been going on in the Commission. But there is no limit in Article 50 to, to the period of extension. That's no, unanimous I'm talking decision. about the European Parliament and the sitting of the new European Parliament, ah. which immediately calls into... Well, if you extend Article 50, you extend membership. Let's mm -hmm. be very clear about that. So you extend also all the rights and obligations of membership. There is an obligation of membership is to organize European elections. So is that, is that a commission position or...? We're the guardian of the treaty. Okay, so you think that basically legally there is no way round. If we're in at the end of May, are you saying then we would have to organise European elections? I think let's first see if there's a request for extension comes, and then it will be up for the 27 to have that discussion unanimously. But you think, but, but you think for a short technical thing it should be relatively straightforward, and apart from that we're going to have big political debates amongst the It's really not my call, so I wouldn't want to... It's really a European Council decision, so I'm sure Donald Tusk will ask President Juncker, Michel Barnier for advice and the European Council, but it's really their decision. It's unanimous 27 decision. Yeah. If Britain falls out without a deal, are you concerned that some member states will try and sign bilateral deals with us and that the EU unity that has been such a striking feature of the last two or three years yes. will begin to fray it, sort of <laughs> in that most extreme of circumstances? been getting the question of fraying unity for two years now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we live in hope. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> and in working on it too. Uh, we're not working on no deal. We have colleagues, the no deal team, so to say, the preparedness team. They're also doing their own tour of capitals right now, just like Michel Barnier did for the negotiations. So they're going around, see what concerns member states have using with the same method of constructing this together, how to manage that kind of situation. I think that's very important, sometimes innovative in the way institutions work. Um, I think there has been a great sense of responsibility for the e from the EU27 leader from the start on the need for unity. And I don't think they would want to see that spoiled in an ideal scenario. Mm -hmm. But the more... And Clearly, everybody also, you come to some prisoner's dilemma kind of situation, right, in, in, in terms of your question. But clearly, f for EU and it, all its members, a collective agreement is much better than any bilateral agreement on such and such particular sector. But as more thought goes into the implications of no deal, we saw some figures come out from a German think tank about mm. the impact. I mean, that the impact of no deal would be enough to take Germany from slight growth into recession. Uh, that starts to set people thinking, doesn't it? Do you think mm. that ultimately some member states might start saying, let's just give them some concessions to get the deal through, as, as the reality dawns of what a no deal might mean? I think we should not underestimate that we're still in this situation where we need to be very mindful and vigilant on the integrity of the single market. And so 
the whole discussion on the reopening the withdrawal agreement also has to be seen in that context, I think. Um, which is also one of the reasons why it's then not possible. I mean, you look at the Prime Minister's letter to Jeremy Corbyn, she speaks about frictionless trade. Mm -hmm. Now, that is something we have not managed to agree to mm -hmm. because of the EU principles and guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so, but clearly, the UK government is still on that line of thinking. And so we're very mindful about um, the fact that the integrity of the single market is still a crucial issue, and leaders are incredibly mindful about that as well. And I think everybody has made the calculation that, yes, a no deal is more costly than the withdrawal agreement. But going on down on a slippery slope that would lead to damaging the integrity of the single market would be tremendously more costly. And so there is, we've said this, and I've said this publicly a year ago, I think, in this town, that the cost of no deal will never be higher than the cost of disintegrating the single market. What does the integrity of the single market mean? And actually, as a supplementary, when was it invented? <laughs> because the single market was created in parts, wasn't it? I mean, the different bits didn't, didn't come into being sure. at the same time, so it wasn't always integral. When did it become a thing? What does it mean, first? Uh, the single market is the deepest free trade zone that you can find anywhere in the world, in terms of lack of restrictions for economic exchanges between countries. Mm. And you can only have such a is that from your old job when you used to sell the benefits? <laughs> um, <laughs> the reason why you can have such a deep free trade uh, regime is that you have common regulations mm -hmm. and common standards. They can be minimum standards or harmonized. I don't want to become too technical, but if they're minimum standards, member states can, of course, go beyond in terms of regulation. If they're harmonized, that basically kills national discretion. And you have the institutional framework that makes it stick. The Court of Justice plays a very important role there, but the Commission equally so as guardian of the treaty. And so you need a single judge arbiter somewhere at the top of the system that says, well, in terms of mutual recognition of standards, Latvia and other countries, yes, it's fine. No, it's not fine. Mm -hmm. If you take yourself out of the EU and out of that system, you can no longer claim we'll have mutual recognition of standards, for instance, because mm -hmm. then you damage the integrity of the single market. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's an ecosystem of rules that is also able to learn from its failures. The financial crisis was a learning process to say mutual recognition of regulatory standards for finance doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. We need a single rule book and we need to harmonize that. Some ideas in this town are still, well, we could perhaps have mutual recognition of each other's standards. Well, we ended mutual recognition between EU countries. And that's part of the integrity of the single market as a, as a story. Mm -hmm. I guess what you're also asking is, when did these four principles become indivisible as part of the integrity? And I think some people maybe underestimate here how attached the EU is to free movement of people. Mm -hmm. And to start talking about the restrictions to free movement of people in the context of a departing member states and how to accommodate its wishes is a non-goal. Okay, so it's in the context, because I mean, when the French and the Germans decided to put transitional controls on the East Europeans in 2004, yeah. I don't recall lots of people in Brussels moaning about the integrity of the single market at that point, and yet it was a direct challenge to the integrity of the single market because you were basically taking away one of the freedoms. But that was foreseen in the accession treaties, and it said there is a 
derogation transition period of, was it seven or five plus seven or seven plus, mm -hmm. uh, five plus two, in terms of not allowing free movement, basically, allowing people to come, but in a regulated manner. Mm -hmm. And what this country didn't do, mm -hmm. I think this country has benefited greatly from the contribution of yeah. EU citizens here. Mm -hmm. Some people regret that now. I, perhaps, but that's people who follow British politics know this better, I think the issue, is it so much the people arriving, is it that, or is it basically the public services, the strain, the lack of investment perhaps in some public services locally in communities? To variety is of that, things, yeah. Sure, yes. Okay, uh, so this is the game we play in London now. <laughs> what are the odds of no deal? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I had to ask. This is, a, this is a parlor game now. I'm sure if you go around to a friend's house for dinner in London, this is the question you'll be asked. There are odds on different scenarios, I would say. I wouldn't want to num put a number on them. Yeah, no. Are you quietly it's confident? It's not a gambling a game. Deal? Quietly confident? No, no. I would not be quietly confident. Okay. <laughs> there are hurdles to, to get over. I want to talk a little bit about the EU, just to round this off, just because with Brexit's getting a bit boring, really. Uh, I understand that you're not going to say that Brexit is some kind of punishment beating, but it's been a salutary experience. And do you think in that sense, insofar as it's sent a message, it's been an effective one to other member states that actually, I mean, you see populists all over Europe changing their minds about referendums on leaving. Do you think in that sense, Brexit has served a useful purpose in that way at least? I've always been surprised with this punishment thesis, or even with the thesis which is softer than they're doing this to set an example for the others, mm -hmm. right? Which is then mm -hmm. contain the populists in, in your country, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, if you look at the withdrawal agreement, it does citizens, it gives the UK a transition which it requested, it settles the money, and it has the backstop. And whether you like the backstop or not, objectively speaking, there is an issue in Northern Ireland with Brexit. So mm -hmm. you, can, you can agree or disagree with, but, so I don't, don't see any punishment in any of that. Some people see punishment in the single customs territory because I think it's a trap by the EU to keep the UK in the regulatory orbit. But again, it's the UK that asked for, mm -hmm. for, for that single customs territory. So I don't see any punishment in the political declaration which leaves all the options open. So, okay, but it's, it's been, been a rather fact-based process, I think, from our, on our side. But these two years have of course, been a bit Brexit of Brexit by study. itself. I would say, don't try it at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because the fundamental issue for me is that Brexit is not a solution for the problems that some people in the referendum may have wanted to signal to the establishment, so to say. Is there a in terms of social exclusion or mm -hmm. feeling alienated from the economic system. I don't see how Brexit would solve that. Is there a danger that the EU comes to be seen as some sort of gilded cage then? That actually, you know, there are a lot of countries that don't like the Euro but are in it, aren't particularly happy about the EU, but they're in it. And basically, they're in it because leaving is a nightmare. <laughs> uh, no, I hope not. Uh, that, that is not the case. I don't hear any signals from governments uh, that, that would point to that. There is, of course, always a struggle for what the EU should do and what it is. I think that's perhaps. And again, coming back to the to Brexit and the bigger picture of the EU, 
sometimes people here see the EU as a confrontational game of UK versus EU. I think that has also been a problem in the negotiations, by mm. the way, the metaphor of the poker game or the kind of a boxing match kind of thing, you know, who, who will be the last one standing here? Mm -hmm. Well, we saw it very, very different. Not perhaps value creation, but let's mitigate the loss of value together, right? But, and so the point that I'm trying to make is governments that are unhappy with what the EU does, the best recipe is to try and work within the EU to change it then and mm -hmm. work, make it work to your advantage. Now, the UK has deprived itself by Brexiting of that future opportunity, which I think is, for this country also, will be a serious challenge because you can say, okay, we're leaving the European Union, we're not leaving Europe. But European affairs, European politics is by and large shaped by the European Union, not fully, of course, there are NATO and other kinds of mechanisms and bilateral cooperation, all the rest of it. But you will no longer be, as UK, be part of the table that shapes the decisions. Are you concerned and that the whole Brexit process has done serious damage to political relations between the UK and its European partners more generally? So even outside the narrow ambit of the EU negotiations, perhaps spilling over into NATO or whatever, that actually the, there is a tension in those relations that is going to be there for a good long while now well, because of this. Well, I think if we get to the optimal scenario, ratification of the withdrawal agreement, and we start the discussion based on the political declaration on the future relationship, you know, that, that will fade away, I think. It, in an ordeal scenario, it, it really depends on how that then unfolds in terms of the relationships between the UK and the EU. And, that's why I said that a lot will depend on how the UK government then acts mm. in an ordeal scenario. Actually, thinking back, I seem to recall in Florence that the Prime Minister spoke about a security treaty between the UK and the EU. Is that something that you've discussed? We have a security cooperation chapter yeah. in the political declaration, both internal security and external security. I think the one on foreign policy and external security is not talked about enough, in my view, mm. because it really sets a framework for an ambitious cooperation. The nature of the cooperation will depend on the political will of the UK as well, but, we, uh, but you have possibility of jointly reinforcing sanctions on third countries, possibilities to work on military capabilities together, mm -hmm. possibility to do military and civilian missions together, anti-piracy, Balkan, mm -hmm. all the rest of it, um, cyber security. Um, so there's a lot of things in there that actually augur well for a, for a very good relationship on, on those issues. The internal security is also there. There, of course, you have the constraint of, you know, the UK is a third country outside of Schengen, so mm -hmm. we need to see, you know, fundamental rights protection. There, the Chequers paper was a very positive contribution to the debate because it committed the UK to the European Convention on Human Rights. So, and that gave us leeway to do more than what we thought to do pre-Chequers. So the security is an important element of uh, political mm -hmm. declaration. Do you think there are things that the EU could and should learn from Brexit, not from the process, but from the dissatisfactions that the referendum revealed? And let's face it, many member states have got internal dissatisfactions. Mm. I mean, is there a, a sense in which the European Union has looked at this and thought we need to be a bit more careful about this and how this is portrayed now, given that? I mean, I'm not saying yeah. that a member states can have a referendum, but... No, no, but you mean the, the dissatisfaction of the voters with the way... And how the way in which that gets channeled rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, at the European Union and mm. that yeah. perceived link. I don't think we needed the Brexit referendum to know that. So, but it's been quite a stark lesson. But yeah, sure, it? absolutely. No, no. And so I've been working on issues of social exclusion and all the rest mm -hmm. of it long before. So it's not like the, it's a blind spot for the EU and for welfare states and member states to work on. Uh, 
it's not easy to find the effective recipes. Uh, that's another discussion in terms of policy. Uh, but if you look at the Juncker Commission, it has done quite a bit there in terms of a more protective European Union. Uh, it has done things on the so posted workers, social dumping, pillar of social rights, a number of different initiatives that if you assume that a number of the voters voted out of unhappiness with the way the labor market and the economy works, would come to but would somewhat be designed to meet their concern, put it mm -hmm. like that. We cannot draw lessons, though, from people who are against sharing sovereignty, mm. right? Because that's our yeah. DNA. And we cannot draw lessons for people who say we would like to restrict free movement of people because we're proud of having achieved free movement of people mm -hmm. with transitions and derogations now and then, but it's there. And so mm -hmm. we're not going to restrict that. And that hence comes back to the four indivisible freedoms. Do you, th do you think ultimately the EU is better off without the UK? <laughs> no. <laughs> not even this UK? <laughs> if I turn this on its head, would you be really, really happy if we had another referendum and voted by 51 to 49 to stay? Would you welcome us then? You're going to change the name into Europe and we a changing UK. It's more of a brand <laughs> than a name, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> that bit won't be on the video when it goes on our website. Um, no, it's not better off without the UK. The single market goes from 500 million to 440 million consumers. UK is a United Nations Security Council member, VETO. G8, large economy, in financial regulation, an influential regulator. So has global reach in many different ways. So I cannot, you cannot say that this is a, somehow a, a win situation for the EU. So it's a lose-lose situation, as you always said. Having said that, with the UK no longer a member, there are certain things that the EU can do, which were probably not possible before. The rebate is gone, of course, in terms of the budget. So that leads to a different budgetary architecture. Well, so is the contribution. Ah, yes, yes, yes. That's, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, but OK, we're talking about the rational revenue so, structure. Yeah. That's, uh, and the defense issue. I think if, if it goes through, the next budget will finance defense capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, structured cooperation on defense and all the rest of it. Surely there will be bilateral cooperation, EU member states, UK and NATO and all the rest of it. But I'm not sure how the UK would have positioned itself in that context in, uh, in terms of stronger defense identity mm. of the EU. But it's still the case, isn't it, that the three big structural problems the EU faces, which are basically migration, Eurozone, and the increasing values divide between East and West, None of them went down to the United Kingdom, and none of them becomes easier to solve absent the United Kingdom. Sure. Even though I remember the Eurozone, December 2011, the yeah. summit where David Cameron said, uh, I would like to use the Eurozone for mm -hmm. the benefit of the city somehow. And that wasn't so helpful, I should say. <laughs> we called it a veto here. I mean, I understood that you signed the treaty anyway. But a we still veto on something veto. which is regulated by qualified yeah, yeah. majority voting amongst the 28. Wasn't the best veto. No, but that brings us back to some of the Brexit ideas where during these negotiations, sometimes we have, for issues that are qualified majority in the UK, so why don't we have a new structure one-on-one? -on -one? We agree, you agree, and then we have a standard. Well, right. you can't do that <laughs> in a system where member states don't have a veto. So you can hardly give a departing member state a veto. Are you confident about the future of the European Union? It needs work. On what in particular would you say? Well, you said the Eurozone, mm -hmm. you mentioned migration, you mentioned rule of law or values, I believe. Those are three huge challenges. 
in terms of the Eurozone, this commission has put ideas on the table and more than yes, proposals. It still needs work, mm -hmm. yeah, the architecture of the EMU. Uh, and the divisions that we have had over that during the Eurozone crisis went very deep between mm -hmm. member states. Mm -hmm. Migration will need constant attention and reinforcement of tools also at European level, both on border control as well as solidarity. So within, so I'm confident that the member states are committed to improving the EU, yes. Are you concerned by the fractious nature of relations between member states at the moment? I think it has probably, this is a personal assessment. I mean, I, I think it has been more fractious during the Eurozone crisis and during the peak of the migration crisis. Uh, so there were terrible divisions between member states. Hmm. Well, the EU overcame that. I mean, how many times did people in this town as well say, well, the euro is going to collapse tomorrow? Uh, and it held together, right? Mm. Uh, and sometimes people make the analogy here to, to the Brexit. You know, the, the efforts, the last minute, 11th hour deal to keep Greece in the Eurozone. Sure, to keep Greece in the Eurozone. But there's, I've heard someone on, I think it was someone who, a politician said on Radio 4, you look at the textbook of EU negotiations, it's always 11th-hour deals, but mm -hmm. I didn't find a textbook with a departing member state. So, so you don't think that logic holds here? No, absolutely not. No. So you're not one of those people that think, as push comes to shove, as the clock ticks, there's no deal hoves into view that people will reassess and there'll be greater flexibility? There'll be no four-shirt summit or whatever you may call it. Or <laughs> well, actually, you're off the hook now because we've just got our quick-fire questions left. So oh. these are very, very easy indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a politician getting into trouble in this case. Yeah, Winston Churchill, hero or villain? <laughs> Actually, don't do that one. We'll leave that one. <laughs> Beer or Burgundy? Beer, I'm Belgian. Okay. Beatles or the Stones? Beatles. Mm. Cheddar or Camembert? Oh, Camembert. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Oasis or Blur? Oasis. There we go. <laughs> I our, last guest, our last guest said, yeah. who? <laughs> that was Jacob Rees-Mogg, so you're, you're ahead of him on this. <laughs> uh, beef bourguignon or steak and ale pie? Beef bourguignon. Shame on you. Sorry. UK in a changing Europe or any other think tank you can think of? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think you did great work, actually, over the last oh. few years. Yeah. We'll take that as the UK in a changing Europe, and because you answered that right, <laughs> and because you're Belgian and you'll use it, you can have a UK oh. changing your <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, thank you ever so much. Thank you. Brilliant.